so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk I about this. I sang for my talent. It was a song from um, Beauty and There's the Beast no musical. no business like show, <laughs> show. business. <laughs> <laughs> no, I sang, it's great to be a Florida Gator. Said it's great to be. Man, there was like no delay there. Lindsay's internet really has improved, guys. Uh-huh. She got the mesh. The mesh. Got the mesh. All right, well, let's finish this podcast for the love. Please, for the love. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello from sunny Nashville. It is sunny Nashville. And also with us is uh, the guy wearing orange, Mr. Tennessee, Brent Leatherwood. Yes, all, all of our listeners will appreciate the fact that I'm wearing the orange. Our listeners will appreciate the fact that I'm wearing orange. You know, I would wager that some of them would have guessed orange if I had asked. If we had just, you know, taken a poll of the audience, they probably would have guessed that you would be donning the the orange and sporting the power tee. But anyway, uh, we're excited. It's another week to do a podcast. Last week, we were literally trapped in the snow, and this week, it is like 70 degrees here. I don't really understand what's going on, but I got to tell you, I enjoyed the snow, and now I'm really enjoying this warm weather. And so, yeah, it's a good day to do a podcast. Uh, also, later in the show, we're going to be talking to our friend, uh, Christine Hoover. We are really excited to talk to her. She's an author, a podcaster. She's a pastor's wife. She is many, many incredible things, and we look forward to that conversation later. Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. First up, we have a piece by you, Josh. So we've talked about this on the show about the Equality Act in the past. And so the title of this piece is The Equality Act, A Dangerous Law with a Clever Name. And the importance of this piece is the fact that we, we everybody says that they like equality, but does this law actually deliver what it promises or how it's titled? And it doesn't. Actually, it's a very unhelpful uh, law, and it is um, destructive. So, Josh, since you wrote the piece, why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Thanks, Lindsay. So since you started with one of my pieces, which I don't think you've ever done before, so hey, thanks a lot for that. Uh, I will, in humility, turn it over to uh, our friend Ryan Anderson, who helpfully comments on this, uh, on the Equality Act. He says, rather than finding common sense, narrowly tailored ways to shield LGBT identifying Americans from truly unjust discrimination, the Equality Act, or H.R. 5, would act as a sword to persecute those who don't embrace newfangled gender ideologies. The truth is that the Equality Act is not an instrument that is meant to bring about equality. Instead, it becomes this weapon that punishes people who dissent from what we oftentimes refer to as the new sexual orthodoxy. For Christians, uh, for 
Jews, for Muslims, for all kinds of people uh, who do not subscribe to a this radically new interpretation of human sexuality, uh, the Equality Act would seek to punish them in all kinds of ways, not to mention the fact that it would do uh, incredible damage to uh, decades and decades, almost 100 years worth of hard-fought gains uh, for women and girls in American life and in American society. This is a really bad law that the House is expected to vote on and pass today's Thursday. Uh, the House is expected to vote on and pass this today, and we are going to do everything we can as an organization to see that this bill is defeated when it reaches the United States Senate or as it's debated in the United States Senate because it is critical that this legislation not pass. It is not that in any way we are for discrimination, but we are – this is no way to bring about equality. And – the ERLC stands firmly against H.R. 5. Thanks for that rundown. And just to sum it up, uh, at the very end of the article, you say this. This bill would eradicate safeguards, destroy civil liberties, and obliterate freedom of conscience. It would also erase women and girls and supplant biological facts with subjective experiences. Supporting H.R. 5, which is what it's officially titled, is no way to advance equality. So, again, it's very deceptive and it's very unhelpful and destructive for our society. But before I move on, Josh, is it really humility if you say in humility, I'm quoting somebody else? Look, <laughs> I'll just take the I'll just, just take the L on that one. Brag. <laughs> just giving you a hard time. Okay, so next up, I wanted to celebrate something that we've been wanting to have an article about for a while, but this is just the way it worked out. So Michael McAfee, who used to work for the Museum of the Bible, he has written a piece titled Celebrating the American Sign Language Bible Translation and Praying for More Laborers to Translate the Scripture. So you might not have heard that, uh, or you might not have considered that American Sign Language is a language and was one without a Bible translation. Just like Michael says in his piece, you might not have thought that the deaf community actually would appreciate having a translation of the Bible for them in uh, the American Sign Language. And so this has actually happened, and it's a really cool translation, and um, it is featured at the Museum of the Bible in one of the rooms that they have that shows languages that the Bible has been translated into and then languages that still need a translation of the Bible. So he tells a little bit of the background about this and then encourages us to continue praying for the harvest and to be aware and open our eyes to people groups and languages that still need a translation of the Bible so that they would have the opportunity to hear the call and come to Christ. Yeah, in this piece, Michael actually talks about his time working at the Museum of the Bible, and he talks about, you know, the Bible translations room and going in there and seeing all of the places where the Bible has been translated into all of the languages of the world. But then it has this, you know, very clear representation of the places where there are people groups and languages that do not have access to the Bible in their native tongue or their heart language. And so there's still so much work to be done on this front. But this, this article actually highlights something that I think for a lot of us, we have never thought about the need for a Bible in American Sign Language. And we maybe most of the time don't think about the needs uh, that others have for the scriptures all around the world. And so this is the, the right kind of thing to put in front of us. It is encouraging to see this translation completed. And honestly, it just, it just moves me to pray that we would see uh, the Bible translated into every known language. And it reminds us of what should be our priorities as believers, things that we often forget about when we're in the midst of our day-to-day, -day, and especially when we have a translation of the Bible that we often take for granted. I know you've probably seen that video where uh, 
I believe it was in an African culture where they received a copy of the Bible for the first time and they were celebrating joyously. It's so convicting. Uh, So like you said, Josh, this is a reminder to be aware of those who don't yet have a translation of the Bible, um, which means they can't read the gospel for themselves, and then to pray that the Lord would hasten the day that they could have a translation of the Bible, and to pray that we would be more grateful for for what we do have and the myriad copies of the Bibles that are sitting on our shelves. And then finally, it's still February, right? Because I keep, I, I don't even know what day it is, working from home and all of that, but still February. We're almost at the end of February, and February is uh, Black History Month. And one person we wanted to celebrate on our site is Fred Luter. So he was the Southern Baptist Convention's first African-American vice president and then went on to be president of the SBC. And so we just, Joe Carter took a little look for us at uh, Fred Luter's life and um, some different facts about him. So, you know, like the fact that he was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and a little bit about his family and his conversion to Christ, um, talking about an accident that he was in and how the Lord worked through that, talked about his first pastorate um, and the different work and ministry that he's done. So we are so thankful for Fred Luter. We're thankful for his legacy as a believer and then his legacy and his work within the Southern Baptist Convention. We wouldn't be where we are or who we are today apart from his contribution. And so we just wanted to celebrate him and recognize him during this month. Yeah, it's absolutely appropriate to highlight, honestly, the trailblazing work uh, that that Fred Luter did uh, as uh, SBC president. We're really thankful for the way that he led the SBC during those two years. And look, that's just not, that's not something to uh, just highlight in February during Black History Month, though it's appropriate. I mean, that's something that we should be thankful for in any month. And, um, you know, may God uh, continue to raise up leaders just like Fred Luter, who can uh, shepherd our Convention of Churches forward. That is good encouragement, Brent. And um, we have got a lot more content, as I say, every week. Um, But in my absence, Josh is doing a fabulous job and everyone else working with Josh. We have content um, that has to do with book reviews. We have a piece from an ICU nurse during COVID-19, which is fascinating. We have a piece talking about parents navigating conversations about race with their children, more about the Equality Act. We have a follow-up piece about France and if there's a future for evangelicals in France. If you listeners remember, we talked about that last week. So Go to ERLC.com, check out the resources that we have. But Josh and Brent, for now, that is a look at what's happening on our site. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. Thanks for that, Josh. And that was certainly a helpful rundown of the week by Lindsay. So let's turn now to culture. And we begin this week actually in our backyard, uh, in Baptist life. That's right. The Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee held their their usual February meeting in Nashville this week, and plenty of news was made over the course of the two-day events. So all of these articles that I'm about to uh, highlight for us, they all come from Baptist Press, which is the, the news service for Southern Baptists. So we'll start with SBC President J.D. Greer's Monday night message. And y'all, it was... It was a, it was a great one. It was heavy. 
And, uh, you know, if we were all texting back and forth, you know, all those little fire emojis would be uh, the, the appropriate one to use. This is what Baptist Press reported, and I'll read from this uh, at length because it really is helpful, I think, for understanding uh, the the fullness of his message. SBC President J.D. Greer challenged members of the SBC Executive Committee to repudiate a pharisaical spirit and unite for the sake of the gospel. Quote, the last year has revealed areas of weakness in our beloved convention of churches, Greer said on Monday during the president's address at the Grand Hyatt Hotel, fissures and failures and fleshly idolatries. COVID didn't produce these crises, it only exposed them. Noting the convention's success during the conservative resurgence of repudiating the leaven of the liberals, he asked, are we now going to repudiate the leaven of the Pharisees? He said the controversy over critical race theory has become a significant obstacle to cooperation. Greer affirmed a previous statement authored by the uh, seminary presidents in the SBC, which drew a response from various ethnic groups and leaders, but said he understands how the issue has contributed to heightened racial tensions within the SBC. Let me state clearly, Greer said, CRT is an important discussion, and I'm all for robust theological discussion about it. For something as important as what biblical justice looks like, we need careful, robust, Bibles-open, on-our-knees discussion. But we should mourn when closet racists and neo-Confederates feel more at home in our churches than do many of our people of color. In Calling for Unity, Greer said he would not water down doctrine. I'm not talking about communicating ambiguity on things the scriptures speak clearly on— the sanctity of life and marriage, the sinfulness of homosexuality. These are things that faithful Christians cannot disagree on, and our consciences are captive in these to the Word of God. But, he asked, do we want to be a gospel people or a Southern culture people? Which is the more important part of our name, Southern or Baptist? That, y'all, is a, a good summary, I think, of uh, Pastor Greer's Monday night message. And I mean, this was, well, A, it was his final presidential address in front of the executive committee. And it, it was strong. And I think for a lot of people, it, it actually may be, uh, even hard, uh, medicine, but I gotta say it's, it was needed. I was not there, but I saw these tweets coming through. And I just have to say that J.D. Greer is a Southern Baptist treasure. <laughs> Very thankful to have had him as president for such a time as this and uh, for the work that he has done as president of the SBC during such a tumultuous time. And more than that, thankful for his faithfulness to the gospel, to his church, to his family, to the gospel, to the word of God above all. Josh, I thought it was funny. At one point, he was joking. I mean, he's he's personally, uh, since becoming SBC president three years ago now, he has personally uh, received uh, criticisms and, and attacks that have said things like, you are being funded by George Soros, and uh, you are a proponent of Marxism and, and all that. And he pointed out, he's like, 
y'all, I'm none of those things. Uh, and in fact, our, our church has uh, led North Carolina in cooperative program giving. We have planted hundreds. I mean, I, I didn't even realize that. They planted hundreds of churches across uh, the globe. Uh, they are strong in their fidelity uh, to all of these very scriptural things that we stand for and that Baptists have affirmed for centuries. I, I just, I thought that was an interesting moment where he kind of gave some personal insight into what he's faced. Now, I really appreciated the personal aspect of that because, look, here's the thing. The people that listen to this podcast uh, are overwhelmingly, like, look, I'll just say good things about you, listeners. We think you're the best of Southern Baptists. We we love you and appreciate you. Uh, and honestly, there's so many good people in Southern Baptist life, and I, I am going somewhere with this. I had a Southern Baptist leader ask me yesterday— uh, if given all of it, like some, some of the garbage that JD highlighted, some of the, the backbiting and the slander and the, all that stuff, if, if I'm still proud to be a Southern Baptist, and the truth is I really am. I really am grateful to be a part of this. And I think the Southern Baptist Convention has all kinds of positive and wonderful kingdom-advancing, God-glorifying elements to it. And I'm proud to be a Southern Baptist. Having said that, just to level with you for a second, there is a culture that has developed, and it it is kind of bubbling up all over the internet and social media of lies and slanders and attacks. And honestly, it is. It's it's spiritual warfare. It's demonic, is, as J.D. called it in his address, attacking people who are seeking to lead the Southern Baptist Convention and God's people more broadly uh, toward faithfulness in all kinds of areas. And so TGC published an article back in 2018 that I read, uh, reread recently after seeing J.D. once again, like just viciously attacked by people who were spreading misinformation about him, that his church, uh, the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, it is, the, the headline of this uh, TGC piece is how one Baptist church has seven times more missionaries than anyone else. JD's church, the Summit Church, literally sends seven times more missionaries to the field than the next closest Southern Baptist church. Of the 46,000 churches in the convention, that is how incredible their sending culture is at the Summit Church. That's how committed he is, not only to the gospel, but to the cause of taking the message of Jesus to the nations. And it is just, it's incredible and inspiring. And Southern Baptists are, as Lindsay said, we are grateful and fortunate. We're blessed to have a leader like J.D. And so you can find both like the video of his address and you can also find the transcript and read some of that. One of my favorite things though is there's this frequent, frequent attack that the ERLC and J.D. Greer and you name it, like just, you know, this list of people that we get funding from George Soros. And the funny thing is J.D. not only, none of us get money from George Soros anyway, but J.D. not only like doesn't do that, he doesn't even know the guy's name because he kept calling him like George Soros or something, which was just so funny. People in the room got a real chuckle out of JD's not only honest denial of any involvement with that man, but also the fact that he did not know his name. We are absolutely blessed by JD Greer and his leadership as SBC president. And the great news is his message was enhanced by the report from EC president Ronnie Floyd this week. From Baptist Press, uh, Floyd's reintroduction of Vision 2025 began with a parallel of Greer's address, warning of a sound of war in the camp of Southern Baptists. For Southern Baptists to gain traction for evangelism, he claimed, they must lead the way in helping create a Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Spirit-controlled culture in the SBC. He laid out five action steps for accomplishing that purpose. 
Increase full-time, fully funded IMB missionaries by a net gain of 500, bringing that total worldwide to 4,200. Add 5,000 new Southern Baptist congregations through church plants, replants, new campuses, and new church affiliations, bringing the total to more than 50,000. Increase the total number of church ministry staff and volunteers through a new training emphasis, calling out the called. Fourth, reverse the ongoing decline in reaching, baptizing, and discipling 12 to 17-year-olds. And finally, increase annual giving through the cooperative program to surpass $500 million by the year 2025. So these are laudable objectives and achievable ones, I believe. Um, and I'm thankful uh, that uh, President Floyd laid that out, as I do think it dovetails nicely with what uh, J.D. Greer laid out as president. Elsewhere, executive committee members also voted to disfellowship four churches cited in a new Credentials Committee report. They accepted amendments to the mission and ministry statement of LifeWay Christian Resources and received a report from the ERLC task force that was established a year ago at this meeting in February of 2020. So on that last part, I think we should obviously address it as folks who work at the ERLC. Uh, We are thankful now that this task force uh, has come to a conclusion, and it has. It's honestly, it's been incredibly difficult to accomplish uh, our ministry over the last year with this cloud hanging over our heads. But as was pointed out in the presentation, uh, we have been squarely all this time uh, serving within our ministry assignment that Southern Baptists have given us and as we are uh, privileged Uh, to carry out as staff of the ERLC. So uh, just like with the previous uh, task force uh, that was initiated to investigate the ERLC, this one comes to a conclusion with the executive committee merely accepting it as information, uh, which obviously there's no accepting of the recommendations. I mean, procedurally, this is now done, and uh, and we're grateful for that as we're able to get on with the opportunity uh, to carry out our work and uh, and and work with in cooperation with our other entities and state conventions and partner churches, and we're thankful for that. What do y'all think, Brent? I think you did a good job putting it in perspective. Uh, the truth is that. I wanted to work at the ERLC because I believe in its mission. I believe in the vital work that we do. And, you know, when I think about the fact that some people may be asking questions about whether or not we need an ERLC, uh, probably for me, the clearest way to answer that is to say that Southern Baptists have invested in the work of the ERLC and our predecessor organizations, but the ERLC's long history of doing this kind of faithful gospel work in the public square for more than 100 years. And in the next 100 years, that work is only going to be all the more important. And so for me, there there really is no question as to whether or not the ERLC needs to uh, exist and continue doing the the vital work that we do. And that's going to be true long after each of us have have left these jobs to go on and do whatever else we're going to do with our lives. Uh, The role of the ERLC is going to remain a critical part of the SBC's work in the public square in the United States. And speaking as the one who, for the past six years, has helped run the online content, you know, we've been accused of not covering certain areas that have been assigned to us, which is completely not true because we have a 
whole variety of issues that we engage on a regular basis. And those that we have engaging them are oftentimes experts in those areas, people who are pastors within the Southern Baptist Convention, leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention, those who um, those who are intimately involved in these different issues like uh, life, uh, covering the gamut of life from womb to tomb, dignity, racial unity, sexual abuse, speaking of the Caring Well Challenge and the uh, incredible work that's been done there. we ha- On our website, ERLC.com, we have four different buckets that things fall into. So news and culture, which something like the Equality Act would go under there, talking about that human dignity, which would, which would cover um, racial unity, but also cover, say, Down syndrome or something like that, family, and then religious liberty. And then we have our suite of podcasts where we're doing work in technology in D.C., uh, this podcast that does a culture rundown, uh, and then Dr. Moore's various podcasts. We have videos, we have book reviews that we do. So you could just one cursory glance on our site and you would see that we cover the issues that we have been slated and tasked with covering. And we do that because like Josh said, we believe in the mission. We believe it's important to educate and equip believers to be able to answer these things in a way that is faithful to the word of God and faithful to the gospel. And um, we we consider it a privilege to be able to serve Southern Baptists and the larger Christian community in this way. That's right. And to pick up on, you know, a couple of themes of, of what you said, we view our work, we we are the missions agency being sent into this chaotic uh, public square uh, that is <laughs> currently part of our culture. And we do that with joy. Uh, we do it with convictional kindness, and we do it knowing it is a privilege uh, to represent uh, our churches in the public square. And the other thing you talked about uh, quite a bit there, Lindsay, was you know the Southern Baptist Convention. We are a convention of churches, and guess what? We, absent some sort of global health crisis uh, or a global war, uh, we get together each year at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this year, it's happening right here in our backyard in Nashville. And I, I bring that up to saying, look, uh, the the uh, procedural conclusion uh, of of this report, uh, it's it's not gonna you know, make our critics go away. It's not going to make our detractors just disappear. And that's okay because look, we, we are out there, uh, in public doing our work in public. And we know, uh, that that's, that that's gonna, that's just part of being in public life right now. But you know what? We should be clear eyed. There are people that want to prevent us uh, from, from carrying out our mission. So folks, just let's all come to Nashville and be the convention of churches that we are. Uh, let's reaffirm once again uh, the cooperative spirit that uh, that not only powers us but all of our entities. And let's come together and just reassert once again: nope, this is important, and we're going to continue uh, moving forward uh, with this. As one uh, individual said, we're going to turn the Gaylord Opryland Hotel into just uh, a giant worship service and a giant business meeting. And uh, we're going to glorify the Lord in doing so. That's really well said, Brent. Hopefully, it's going to be an opportunity for us to come together and to celebrate what God has done and look forward to what He will do and not be distracted by other things. That's a good word. All right, moving on to the COVID front. We hit an incredible mark this week that, frankly, uh, a year ago, it would have been unimaginable. 500,000 lives 
have now been lost due to COVID-19. NBC News reports, nearly a year since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic on March 11th, 2020, 100,000 COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. was a low estimate. Early on, cities such as New York and Chicago were hit hard, particularly in communities of color. Then, hotspots in nursing homes and meatpacking plants began to emerge as the virus hit suburban and rural communities. The death toll in the U.S. would eventually eclipse that of every other country and has claimed more lives since then. Uh, I'm highlighting this from NBC News because it actually has uh, an interactive map uh, where users can go and actually see uh, the areas across the country uh, that are the hardest hit. So uh, even in the midst of uh, that horrific uh, milestone being passed, we are continuing to achieve good markers uh, that show that we are making progress. So uh, once again, uh, across the country, uh, coronavirus cases were down about 20%. So we're, we're continuing to do something right. And we got news that the uh, latest vaccine is nearing approval. This one is from Johnson & Johnson. And Axios reports there, the FDA staff released a briefing document on Wednesday of this week endorsing Johnson & Johnson's one-shot coronavirus vaccine as safe and effective. An FDA advisory panel will next meet on Friday to review the briefing document and vote on whether to recommend an emergency use authorization. The FDA will then decide on whether to accept the recommendation and issue that emergency use, clearing the way for distribution in the U.S. to begin. Analysts have looked at this and have said, hey, here's why it's helpful. One, it's just one shot. It can be stored in regular refrigerators that are found in pharmacies across the country. And because of that, it can more easily get to and be transported to rural areas. Uh, so I, this this will really bolster the effort uh, against coronavirus. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that, uh, that we're getting to a place where these are going to be readily available. My mom just got her first vaccine shot yesterday, which was amazing. We are so thankful for that Um, because I know so many people who are suffering and haven't been able to make it to the shot before suffering and or dying from COVID. So we're very thankful. And I got to tell you, I'm very thankful for this. Uh, How many times can I say thankful, everybody? I'm grateful for this uh, vaccine news that some have said are getting closer to reaching herd immunity for the good news. I am still surprised at the number of friends that I have that are believing vaccine conspiracies. It's just wild to me. And I send them this information that we have, uh, but it is just crazy to me. All I can say is, well, I sure am glad that we have vaccine against polio and measles and whooping cough. And those weren't even developed with as much technology as we have today and as much science. So I know there's fear in the unknown, but um, and I'm thankful for those who do the hard work of fighting the misinformation and providing the right information for us. Which brings me to the fact, Brent, this marvelous segue that our own boss, Dr. Moore, is doing the hard work along with another individual of writing a Washington Post op-ed about this very topic. Can you tell us about it? (laughs) No, I was going to pitch it to Josh for him to tell us about it. Oh, well, Josh, (laughs) tell us about it. 
Yeah, so Dr. Moore actually uh, wrote a piece in the Washington Post. He has an op-ed with Walter Kim from the National Association of Evangelicals. And they are talking in that op-ed about, it's it's really actually pretty clever. The title uh, refers to the fact that the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. And what they're really trying to do is encourage Christians to reject all of this kind of conspiratorial nonsense that has surrounded some of the vaccine news. It is not uh, Bill Gates trying to turn you into a computer or a cell phone tower. It is not uh, going to mark you for some kind of end times prophecy. It is uh, literally a vaccine to help you be protected from COVID-19. And so they're just urging Christians to to take the vaccine. And uh, we've had some people ask us, like, why, why do you see this as a part of your mission at, at the URLC? And our goal at the URLC is to help equip Christians to apply the gospel to all of life. And in this case, they, they make the argument in that op-ed that Christians should, for the sake of our neighbors and uh, for our own good, take this vaccine, avail ourselves of this, you know, miracle of medicine and in order to get our lives back to normal so that we can refocus once again on on the things that matter most. Well, and the the thing I want to circle back on with what Lindsay said at the outset there was look, we don't we don't want to criticize people for asking questions. If anything, we want to foster that because it's always helpful uh to to get more information. The the thing about this particular subject is the answers are searchable and findable and knowable uh, so that people can have confidence uh, to to move forward and 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 get these vaccines. And so these are going to save lives. They're going to cut down on the spread of uh, this virus. And, and that is why this is a helpful thing uh, that, that Christians should feel uh, confidence in and, and to be able to uh, communicate that uh, to to their neighbors. Also, Josh, you just said that one of the conspiracy theories was to, I think you said, turn people into cell phone towers. Is that I've heard? Because that's heard a new one. All kinds of crazy things about this, including the fact that the vaccine is metal and it's going to turn you into like some kind of like radio frequency generator. Oh, okay. I don't know. It's all right. Just, so, so actually, will turn people into towers. Okay, I had heard maybe controlled by towers, but uh, actually turning people into uh, to, I mean, I do want to find a way to be able to Google instantaneously. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe that. I don't, I don't even <laughs> yeah. have anything for that. There you I go. Am just, All right. Look, here's the thing. When you see conspiracy theories, just run away. That's my, Josh Wester, that's my hot take. Just well, and, run away. And, and again, they're just so easily defeated by the information that we have access to. And so that's, that's, a, engage it. And, and, and swat them down. All right. Turning to developments on Mars. Turning to developments on the planet Mars. Okay. So this isn't like saying like, hey, turning to, you know, what's going on in Kentucky or even what's happening on the other side of the globe. It's turning to developments on the planet Mars. Like. What? We are familiar with Mars, Brent. Well, I know, but just like what a moment. Let's appreciate the I moment know. that we're living in. That there are developments on Mars to be able to talk about. Yeah. Have for we real. discovered that Matt Damon is actually there? <laughs> That's right. Yes. The Martian. That's a great movie. All right. NBC News reports this week NASA's Perseverance rover has recorded the first audio clips captured on the surface of Mars, beaming them back to Earth, guttural sounds of wind gusting 
on the Red Planet. The first of its kind audio was released on Monday of this week, along with extraordinary new footage of the rover as it descended and landed last Thursday. The images are among the most sophisticated yet taken of Mars and offer never-before-seen views of the rover approaching its landing site. So uh, this was a source of incredible fascination uh, for my kids as I was taking them to school this week. Uh, We called up the audio clip and, and just listened to it over and over again. And I was just trying to help their little minds understand we are among the first people ever to hear a, a sound made on another planet. Like, that's just incredible. They were like, okay, well, you know, thanks, Daddy. Can I have a Lunchable? Um, like, that was, uh, they didn't seem to be quite as fascinated as, as It's going to be like whenever we end up with flying cars and hoverboards and the kids who are born, and that's just the thing. They're never going to be able to appreciate the fact that literally we've been waiting our whole lives to get there. Uh, when I heard this, what you described as guttural sounds from the Planet Mars. Uh, NB- NBC News uh, it described it as that. That's good. I appreciate your precision there in making sure that people know uh, the source. Yeah, when I when I heard that, I was, I mean, it's weird. It all, It's kind of alien-ish if you've you know, seen that. But in any case, it is, man, like how incredible to get to hear audio from another planet. Now, it sounded like a void because it is, but wow. It was just, it's just surreal that we're there. It also sounds like we're one step closer to confirming that it is indeed where men come from. But up bump. Wow. I'll be here all day, folks. Wow. Those are the okay. kinds of jokes people, people are here for. Guttural. <laughs> I mean, Mercy. come on now. <laughs> okay. And so it, uh, but yeah, it, it sounds like this kind of like low rumble. Like my kids were noticing, like it, it was just rumbling in the speakers in my truck. And, um, and so we learned this, the reason that you hear the low rumble as opposed to anything else is because with the atmosphere being different on Mars, you don't hear, uh, high pitched noises. So like if there were actual birds on Mars, you wouldn't be able, be able to hear them, you know, tweeting and you wouldn't be able to hear a person whistling. Like that, that's kind of neat. So there you go. So you can impress your friends uh, at your your next uh, socially distanced uh, dinner party. All right, we're going to end on a little bit of a lighter note from The Verge news source. The Postal Service is getting new mail trucks. This comes I love after this story. a story. <laughs> it comes after a years long competition. The new truck will be built in America by Wisconsin based defense contractor Oshkosh. Uh, not just a maker of overalls. That was, that was another dad joke. <clears throat> and can be fitted with both gasoline and electric drivetrains, but it won't hit the road until later in 2023. Uh, the Post Service has been looking to replace its existing mail trucks because they're out of date and they're actually a fire hazard. There's been reports of some of them just spontaneously catching on fire. Social media immediately does what social media does and pounced on the news. So just surveying some of the comments, uh, one individual said, it looks like a platypus. Another said, it looks like a vehicle designed by Pixar. Someone said it was cute. Another person said it was hideous. So you've got yourself a veritable social media buffet uh, to, to choose uh, your own reaction uh, to, this, uh, to this truck. 
Yeah, Brent, I, I think that's right. I mean, social media, you said it well, it pounced. And um, there were all kinds of reactions. My first one, honestly, the Pixar thing is exactly what I thought when I saw this mail truck. If you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, the New York Post tweeted about it and said, USPS unveils new sleek-looking mail trucks. And uh, our friend Megan Basham, she said, I'm suddenly questioning if I ever understood what the word sleek means. And I thought that was a pretty clever uh, response to this because they are strange-looking. I don't know if they're cool or if they're not cool, but in any case, it is a very different look. All right. And with that, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend, Christine Hoover. Christine is one of my favorite people, honestly. Uh, she is actually an ERLC trustee. So I'll just put this caveat out there. Before she was an ERLC trustee, uh, she wrote one of my favorite books, which is called Searching for Spring. It's just beautiful writing. And she is an author, a podcaster. She's a pastor's wife. And she is someone that you need to know and hear from. And we are really excited about this conversation today. Well, Christine, thanks so much for joining us today. As we're getting started, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I always love getting to be a part of anything that ERLC is doing. Uh, my name is Christine, and I'm married to Kyle. He is the pastor of a church that we planted in 2008 in Charlottesville, Virginia. So we're misplaced or displaced Texans. We're originally from Texas, but now live in Charlottesville. We have three boys and they're all teenagers now. And one of them is about to graduate from high school. So we're about to move into that new stage of life. Um, in our church, I serve in various ways, but my favorite is probably getting to teach the Bible to women, which has been a little bit harder during COVID, but we have used Zoom and all of that. And finally, I'm a writer. I've written five books, and I'm wrapping up a sixth one that will be coming out next year for Pastor's Wives. And so I'm excited about that. But as far as what God is teaching me right now, I think there's obviously, I'm sure we all could say in the past year, there's been tons of lessons we've learned through this COVID season. And I think as a leader, this year has required so much from, from us. And I would definitely put my husband in that category, watching him lead. Um, and I think he's done it well. And I think with leaders are trying to do it well. We want to help and comfort and serve our brothers and sisters who are suffering during this time. But one thing that I'm learning is that as, as a leader, it often feels so noble and right and holy to pour out our lives for other people. And it is that. We know God is pleased as we make His name known amongst the nations, and as we consider others more significant than ourselves. But sometimes I think, in my own life at least, I can make that goal a priority that is to the detriment of those closest to me, specifically my husband and my kids. And so I've really been challenged to think more of Ephesians 5 and the picture that that, that represents, that marriage represents that my husband and I are each living uh, half of that picture of the intimate devotion between Christ and His church. And so when we delight in one another and we enjoy one another, we are displaying the clearest picture of love that a married couple can display. And so God is really pleased with that when we're devoted to our spouses. And I know that sounds like, well, yeah, obviously, but I think it's been pretty painful for me to realize this year that sometimes as a leader, I think of my marriage as more of a rest stop between moments of ministry. And the real work of ministry for me is something I think of as out there, outside of my home, 
And that can have consequences for a marriage that's in here, inside the home. But the Lord has really been showing me that as a married person, my marriage is not awaiting to then go back out and accomplish His will. That when I'm attentive and devoted inside my marriage, I am smack dab in His will, and He is delighted in that. And I think, of course, the same could be true for those who are listening who are single, that when you're single and you live as He is sufficient for all of life and you remain true to Him in body, mind, and soul, you're doing a great work of ministry because you're displaying the sufficiency of Christ and that delights God. So that's just been a picture that God has taken me back to in this time when we've been really weary and worn down in ministry, just to remember that He delights in me, delighting in my in my marriage and my spouse. It was a good lesson, Christine, and it's one that resonates with me. As someone who was older when I got married, I had already done the leaving and cleaving from my parents, but I feel like the Lord stripped away some friendships and some ministry things to teach me the value of what you just said, you know, because I was already so used to not just pouring myself out, but running all around that it was easy for me to, as you said, view marriage as a rest stop per se. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners. So you mentioned COVID and this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So COVID is is all around our culture right now. But in addition to that, can you tell us what you and those around you are paying attention to right now in culture? Yeah, I've been paying attention a lot lately to issues related to gender and homosexuality and identity. And I know other Christians around me are doing that as well. We actually live in a university town, Charlottesville. Um, that's defined by progressivism and intellectualism. And so these have been ideas, it's not just current, but that have been the forefront of our minds for a while now as we seek to minister here. And we have a lot of young people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. And I've just been reading, I don't know if y'all saw that article where it said one in six people in the Gen Z, Generation Z, they identify now as LGBTQ or some other non-binary identity. And just reading, a, you know, I just feel like on the news, what comes up is a lot about sexual identity and practice. Um, and I think that that is something that's on my mind, not just because of our ministry here, but also because I have three teenage boys. And I really want to be aware of the messages that they're receiving in culture and help them to think biblically about those ideas while also knowing how to love their neighbors well. I mean, we have neighbors on our little cul-de-sac that are um, married, male, that are married. And so how do we love them? How do we interact with these ideas biblically while also loving our neighbors? Well, thank you for that, Christine. And look, you know, you wear many different hats and serve the church in many different roles, one of which we are especially thankful for because you serve as as one of our ERLC trustees, and we are so just blessed uh, by your engagement and participation and leadership on that board. So thank you for that. But you're also an author and a writer. You have written multiple books uh, with many more coming in the future. Uh, can you tell us about the projects that you're working on now? And would you mind giving us a, a little bit of a window into your writing process? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking, Brent. Uh, As I mentioned before, I'm wrapping up a manuscript for a book. It's called How to Thrive as a Pastor's Wife. Uh, I am really passionate about encouraging and supporting pastor's wives. So I hope that this book 
will serve them well. That comes out next spring. Uh, in addition, I'm releasing my first ever Bible study on April 1st. It comes out with Lifeway, and it's called Seek First the Kingdom. And it's a deep dive into the book of Matthew. And I love studying and teaching the Bible, so I'm super excited to get to lead other people through Matthew and really delving into one of the topics that Jesus talked about most, which is the kingdom of God. And I think it's such a relevant topic because we're living in this time when I think Christians have become really confused about power and rule and rights. And we're, we're, we've kind of joined the world in setting up our own little kingdoms, whether it's a political kingdom or, you know, as we were talking about before, the sexual identity. And I think that tells me, tells us that we're confused about the kingdom of God, that he is building through the rule and reign of Christ. And so that's why I wrote this study, to help people understand the king and his kingdom, how we enter the kingdom, how we live the kingdom of life, what is the culture of this kingdom that he's building. And really, it comes down to knowing, and the goal of it is knowing what God blesses and where this blessing is found. So that's coming out in April. Super excited. But as far as my writing process goes, uh, I love getting to talk to different writers about their writing processes because I think we all do it so differently. But for me, it just starts with the idea, and I'm sure it starts that way for everyone. Just I keep a running list of ideas on my phone, and if there's an idea that I can't stop thinking about, I start brainstorming that and thinking through, is that a book length thing or not? My Matthew Bible study came from my own study of the book of Matthew, and God was doing a work in my heart regarding my own affections and allegiances and ambitions, and I became just so captivated by Jesus' descriptions of the kingdom, what the culture of the kingdom is, and really challenged by what He says about who is truly blessed. And I, so I became fascinated by that idea so much so that I wanted to share that what I was learning with other people. So that's where that idea came from. And so once I have that idea, I develop an outline and I just start writing. I use Scrivener. I don't know if y'all know what that is, but it's a super helpful app for writers. It's kind of like works like a file folder where you can have different tabs. And so you can just put different ideas in different um, sections of the book. And I'm a pretty, because I'm a mom and a pastor's wife, there's a lot going on outside of writing. I have to be pretty disciplined about my time for writing. And so when my kids are in school, I write Monday through Thursday, since Friday's my husband's day off. And I do that pretty pretty much every day. I've already done some writing today. Um, I write straight through and do not read anything that I've written until I'm completely done with the manuscript. Because if I if I read what I've already written, I would probably get super discouraged and stop and never keep going. Um, but I just try to get it all out. As Anne Lamott says in her Bird by Bird book, I love that. Just get it out, go back later and look at it um, and edit it once I have it all out. So with the book I'm currently working on, I am hoping to finish the rough draft by next week and then I'll print it out. And I read it out loud to myself to hear what it sounds like being read and edit it as I go. And so I'm almost there. I'm super excited. I love the, the, the day when you get to turn it in and it's done, at least for a time. Um, but that's where I'm at right now. It probably feels like you've given birth to another child after carrying that message yes. for so long. <laughs> yes, um, Absolutely. 
Well, congrats. We're so excited for all that you have coming out and the way that it's going to benefit the church. I've loved your books. I loved your friendship book as well. I just think of that one in particular during a difficult season. So I'm looking forward to your first ever Bible study too coming out. That's so great. So you obviously, as you've even just recounted to us, been in ministry and, and been a pastor's wife for many years. And we're recording this about a week after the Ravi Zacharias ministry report came out last week, the devastating report. And um, in light of watching so many high-profile ministry leaders fall, what would you tell Christians about maintaining integrity and a close walk with the Lord throughout life and ministry? Hmm, such a good question. And this has really been heavy on my heart since that report came out. It's really, it's just so sad to read what happened. And I I feel sad for the victims and those affected within his ministry. Um, My husband and I have actually talked about this a lot, not just with this occasion, but with, with past things, just asking ourselves, how do we avoid getting to the place of a seared conscience? And I mean, obviously the report was much more than uh, it, this was a criminal behavior. Um, but how do we make sure that we keep our integrity and our relationship with the Lord intimate, a soft heart before Him? And one thing that I keep coming back to over and over is just concern for the emotional health of pastors and leaders within the church. And what I mean by that is just emotional health is being able to acknowledge and name and deal with negative emotions. I think what I've seen in in my own life and in my husband's life is that often pastors and leaders, pastors' wives included, were called upon to enter into some really difficult situations with people in our churches. And, you know, even thinking about this past year, dealing with these huge national issues that pastors are called to speak on, like racial issues and political issues and the pandemic. And what that means is that leaders— unfortunately, learn to shove their own needs and uncertainties and weaknesses aside and not give them any attention. And sometimes to the point where they can't even recognize their own emotions and their own negative emotions, and they don't know how to deal with it appropriately. And so they don't, and then I would, I think even sometimes we think we don't have time to deal with those kinds of things if we're feeling grief or discouragement or loneliness. And even if you can name those things, what do you do with them? Who do you take them to? And I think that that's where leaders get into trouble is that when we go long periods of our life without ever acknowledging our own needs and weaknesses, putting ourselves in positions to receive, that takes vulnerability that, that we are we often train ourselves to avoid. And so I would say to leaders like me and like my husband that we we really have to learn to slow down and to name how we're feeling to someone who loves us. And and I, I, that may sound like an, I don't know what y'all think about me saying that, but one thing my husband and I are trying to do is just incorporate in our daily communication, not just rattling off what we did that day and making sure we're on the same page with our schedule, but to share with each other emotions that encapsulate our days and just be able to name it to one another and support one another in that emotion, especially if it's something that we're wrestling with that's negative. But I think I think there's a second part to it. And my, my husband and I recently read a book by George McDonald called Rebuilding Your Broken World. 
And this, this George McDonald was a pastor who had an affair, and he wrote about how he got to that point. And in it, he describes not just the internal circumstances that make us prone to getting tangled up into sin, things kind of what I just described, where we kind of become emotionally numb, but also he describes these external circumstances that can create tempting situations and that we need to be aware of those things for us personally. And he describes them as like a spider web that the fly will come and he'll kind of like set down on the spider web just briefly and then dart away thinking that he's in control, that he's not going to get caught up into the spider web. But the spider is standing off to the side waiting and the, the, the fly thinking he's in control gets trapped. And I think that that's often what happens with leaders is that we play on spider webs thinking that we will not get trapped. And so one thing that Kyle and I have been talking about and what we're doing to avoid these things is just talking to our, the closest people around us and talking to them about our specific spider webs. What are we drawn to? What what are would we be tempted by? Is it, you know, for pastors out there, are you desperate for the approval of a certain person in your church? Or do you find yourself making decisions that favor people in your church who tend to hold you up on a pedestal? Or even do you work closely with someone of the opposite sex where an emotional connection could potentially grow because you're sharing in an intimate task together, a spiritual task? And so I think those could be examples of spiderwebs, anything where there's a craving for approval or for a growing church or for a good reputation or whatever it is. And so I would just suggest that, and this is what we're we're doing, is just giving trusted friends specific questions that they can ask regarding our connection with one another, our physical and emotional connection, our intimacy with the Lord, but also questions regarding those external circumstances that can easily tempt us. And I think what I'm saying is it's difficult to admit these things. It's difficult to be very honest that we are weak and that we are tempted in certain ways. But if we want to be men and women of integrity, we want the healing and the wholeness that comes from confessing our sin to one another and walking in the light in every possible way that we can. You see, that that right there is just why I'm so thankful for you, uh, for not only just that that real world uh, application, but the the peek into uh, the marriage that you and Kyle have, and the ways that y'all are proactively trying to defend that marriage, uh, trying to defend what God has has given y'all. And I am, gosh, thank you. That was just so rich, and that was so helpful. And um, and so yeah, that's that's why people. Uh, need to be listening uh, to you, Christine. And so speaking of ways they can listen, they can do it through your podcast, By Faith. So uh, here for our last question, uh, tell us what made you want to start a podcast? And we'd also love to know who were some of your favorite guests and why. Yeah, well, my my podcast is called By Faith, and I started it in 2018 because I was releasing a book called Searching for Spring, which is really about um, hope and suffering and how do we trust that God's going to bring beauty out of our suffering. And I knew when I wrote that book that I could not touch on everyone's specific types of suffering that we face. And so I started the podcast to get to talk to different guests about 
the ways that they have walked through suffering and how God met them in that. And after I did, uh, I thought I was just going to do a season, but once I got started, I realized I really love it. I love getting to talk to people, hear their stories. I love getting to share people's stories with other people. And um, so I kept going. And what I decided to do was each season I would do uh, tackle a topic from different angles. So I've done one on friendship. I've done one on service. And actually, Dr. Moore joined me for that to, to talk about leadership. And uh, yeah, I've he- heard stories of faith. And uh, right now I'm doing a best of. So interestingly enough, to your question, my favorite guests, I'm, I chose an episode from each season that was my very favorite that I continue to think about. So some of those favorite guests would, of course, include Dr. Moore. I always love getting to talk to him and learn from him. Um, but also Zach Eswine. He is a pastor and wrote the book, uh, The Imperfect Pastor. And he dwells a lot on the poetic books of the Bible and just thinking about those things and applying that in a way that just really has stuck with me and struck me in some very unique ways. So I love talking to him. I also loved getting to talk to Garrett Kell. He is a pastor in Northern Virginia, and his testimony is incredible of how he was saved, but then also how he was delivered out of an addiction to pornography when he was a pastor. And God did that in a very drastic way. And just hearing his story, I still think about that and the goodness of God to bring our sin into light and to deliver us from our sin. And then finally, I would say last uh, season, I talked to Caroline Saunders and she's a pastor's wife and I got to do it in person. And the middle of COVID, we were at a conference together and we just had the best time talking. And I've heard so many from so many pastor's wives who've said that that was a really impactful conversation for them. And again, since I love encouraging pastor's wives, that's probably one of my favorites as well. So, Christine, you have covered so much ground just in this short conversation, and the words you shared uh, uh, about faithfulness in ministry and marriage, that was incredibly helpful because all of us have been have been reeling and really, really gripped in the aftermath uh, of the report about Ravi Zacharias and seeing uh, all that took place there was just incredibly devastating. And so... Thank you for the wisdom that you were able to share with us uh, about that and, and all of us. I mean, our prayer for our listeners, our prayer for ourselves, our prayer for you is that uh, that God would keep us faithful and that he would protect us uh, from that kind of sin that, that clings to us and comes for us. And so uh, really, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was a privilege to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you all so much for having me. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. I just have one resource to recommend this week. Uh, We have actually had an article written about it. It's a kid's Bible resource put out by an organization called Truth 7-8. So this is called More Than a Story, Old Testament. So there will be a New Testament, but it's a new kind of resource. I'm taking this from the website for children, taking them on a chronological journey through the Bible with a God-centered, gospel-focused, discipleship-oriented, theologically grounded. So that is a lot of um, descriptors there. Perspective. It's really beautiful too. It's it's a thicker resource, but it's it's not too overwhelming. I just got my copy in the mail. We. We had an art, I think I already mentioned this, but we had an article about it on our website. But it's just a way for you to really help the Bible come alive and the storyline of scripture come alive to your children. So check it out. 
What you got, Brent? So, you know, this uh, this first appeared uh, at the beginning of the month, I think, uh, and I just got around to listening to it. But it's a it's a new podcast interview with Pastor Tim Keller uh, of Redeemer Church up in, in New York City. And it's on the podcast, Life and Books and Everything. And that is hosted by uh, friends of the RLC, Justin Taylor, Colin Hansen, and, and Kevin DeYoung. And uh, in this interview... I mean, gosh, uh, Tim Keller just talked. I mean, I could listen to him talk about just pretty much any subject because there's just so much wisdom that flows from the man. But he talks about you know his his bout with cancer right now and and how uh, that that is actually a battle with sin. Um, he talks about books and uh, but th- there was there was one moment in particular uh, that that really just kind of stuck with me, and that was he was talking about how. He and his wife, they they you know they take a vacation every so often, and they've got a spot down in South Carolina that they they like to go to, uh, or there's a place in England that they they like to visit. And he was just talking about how you know when they do that, they're just trying to get away uh, to to places, and and they miss just like the everyday sweetness uh, of the life that they they have uh, because it gets filled with busyness and talks about the value of just just resting and and being at peace uh, with what the Lord has called him to do and turning down things that just kind of fill up uh, his schedule and um, and that's really come into focus uh, in in this season of life that he's in and um, that was just gosh that ministered to me it made me realize I, I don't need to seek anyone else's approval uh, and and I, I just need to rest with the confidence and uh, assurance that I have in the fact that uh, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that's probably a good word that, that all of us could use in this uh, very hectic season of, of life that we're all in uh, because of this pandemic and because of all the things that we're, we're having to balance. I would definitely recommend it to, to our audience. Josh, what's on your mind? For me this week, I was thinking back through resources that have been really helpful to me, and a book I have recommended a number of times is by our friend Jonathan Lehman, who is the, uh, I think he's the executive director, editorial director at Nine Marks. He has written a ton of books on the church, but one of the books that he wrote on the topic of, of faith and politics is called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. That book is like a go-to for me. It's literally on standby. It was sitting next to me uh, before I realized, hey, I should talk about this for my lunchroom. Like it was literally the thing sitting next to me. So it really is on standby all the time. It is super helpful, especially if you're a Christian who uh, has anywhere from like an intermediate knowledge about uh, politics and how faith in politics might intersect to if you're a total beginner, this is a really great place for you to start or a place for you to go a little bit deeper. And uh, it is just an incredible resource that I would recommend uh, to people, especially as uh, the, you know, very political and fractured environment that we're living in. It's not going away anytime soon. And so this would be a great resource for Christians who are interested in those things. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we are so grateful uh, for you supporting the podcast and listening to it every week. We appreciate the feedback that we get from you. And if you like the podcast and want to help us spread the word, you can share this episode on social media or go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review. Uh, But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week with more content.